Uh, if you guys, I don't know, if you wanted to take a lovely drive out into the uh, country next week and go uh, worship with the Esparto Church, I think that'd be awesome. Their services are going to start at 10.30, so that means you get to sleep in, so that's fun. Uh, but it might be kind of cool to have a group from Woodland out there, especially on that first day that they're starting uh, in that new building. Um, so I, I don't know, that, that, that'd be kind of a neat thing. Uh, and we're, Chris and I are preaching pretty much the same passage, so you won't miss out too much <laughs> from what's going on here. T- take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at just the last little part of Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Uh, there, are, there are certain guidelines around how we're supposed to study the Bible. Because it is so easy to like twist or misinterpret uh, what the Bible has to say, uh, which leads to, to confusion and misunderstanding and outright heresy. And uh, most of the division that occurs within uh, different Christian denominations is because of misinterpretation of Scripture. Most, I would say, if not all of the cults of Christianity sprung up from a misinterpretation of Scripture, just a misunderstanding of what the Bible has to say. And, th- and the problem... The problem isn't with the Bible, right? Like the, the Bible's inerrant. The Bible's good. The problem is with us. Like we're not inerrant. We're limited in what we can understand and in our knowledge and in uh, how many languages we read. We're the ones who are a little bit limited. Uh, and so we're the ones that have to do a little bit more work to make sure that we understand what, what Scripture is saying. And so there's some basic Bible study methods that we need to employ when we're studying Scripture. One of them is we need to pick a reliable translation. Uh, Here in the pews, we use the New uh, American Standard. Uh, ESV is another good one. Uh, New King James isn't bad. Uh, There's lots of... I, I use the NIV just to, just to read from because it's a, uh, it flows well. Uh, there's, there are lots of different translations. And sometimes it's helpful to look at a couple of them, to look at a, at a few and, and compare. And then there's an importance of understanding the passage that you're reading in its context. Because, man, I have so many errors happen when we just kind of pick a verse out of its original context and make it mean something that it sounds like it might mean, but it doesn't actually mean in the context it was written in. Uh, it's helpful to do word studies where we, uh, as we're reading through a passage, pick out a couple of key words and try and understand better what does that mean. And I mean, there's all kinds of Bible programs and and uh, word study books. And I have this thing called a keyword study Bible, which is just a, a a Bible that has certain words that are key underlined and explanations of uh, what those words mean because. The Bible was written in different language, right? It was written in Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic and and, uh, and Greek. And so uh, with translation, there's a a difference in meaning and connotation sometimes that you got to be aware of. Uh, It's really crucial to understand the audience that the particular passage that you're reading is uh, being written to. Each book of the Bible was written by a specific author to a specific person or or group of people. And and knowing that relationship and and what the deal is there and what the the occasion for the writing is is super important and, and helpful. 
It's also helpful to understand a little bit of the culture of the day because there's lots of figures of speech and lots of different idioms and different things that, that meant something there that we don't catch because we're, we're way over here. And that's where good commentaries are, are awesome or, or a good study Bible that has some commentary notes in it that can help explain the setting and the culture and uh, th- those kind of details. Really, the goal is to understand what did the author mean when he was writing and how would the author have been understood by those who were originally reading it. Then there's some more uh, in-depth principles of interpretation, some some, uh, more top-shelf ones that are also important. There's one that's called the analogy of Scripture. Uh, and that's basically if you come to a hard passage in the Bible where you're not sure what it means, you, you go and try and find a different place in the Bible where it explains. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. Uh, I wrote my, my master's thesis on applying the analogy of Scripture to the issue of divorce in Matthew 19. It's riveting. If you ever want it, it's, it's got some dust on it, but it's good. Uh, then there's this other principle that it's important, and it's going to be especially important as we process our way through Acts, that you have to make sure as you're reading any passage of Scripture to differentiate between those passages that are descriptive and those passages that are prescriptive. We've got to be really careful. That's one of the things. Just ask ourselves, what am I reading here? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive refers to a passage that is describing something that happened. It's history, right? It's describing events that happened at some point in the the course of redemptive history. Prescriptive passages are, are more about teaching us about something that we should do or should happen. Uh, okay, so so David took a rock and slung it at this giant who was mocking God and knocked him down and then cut his head off with a sword. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? That's descriptive. That's describing an event that happens. It's not saying that anytime anybody mocks God, you're supposed to hit him in the head with a rock and then chop their head off. If If we get confused there, that could lead to a lot of jail time. That's a... That's an issue. Uh, in, in Ephesians, when Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. That's prescriptive. Like, here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how you're supposed to talk. And so when we read the Bible, it's really, really important that we rightly discern between de- descriptive sections in which what we're supposed to do is glean the principles and understand something more about the nature and character of God. From David and Goliath, we can learn a lot about, about David's confidence and faith and God's power and God's protection over him. There's a lot of cool principles that we can get out of that. Versus the prescriptive, where it's just saying, here's, here's how we need to live now as believers. And usually, usually it's pretty easy to discern, right? It's pretty easy to figure out, is the section I'm reading historic? Uh, If that's the case, then it's probably going to be descriptive. But Acts is weird. Acts is a book that is, is peculiar. I mean, obviously, it's a historic book. It's describing the events that took place during the foundation of the church. 
And as such, it really needs to be read and interpreted and understood as being more descriptive than prescriptive. No doubt about it. But way too often, way too often, people will take different parts of Acts and read it as prescriptive. Like, this is how you're supposed to do things now as a church. And and I don't know why. Maybe because it's like a transition book between uh, the history of the Gospels to, to the epistles, which are more prescriptive. Maybe it's just because the things that we're reading about in Acts are awesome. And we're like, yes, I want some of that for my life and for my church. I think that's probably the big reason why we read it that way. But no matter, no matter how awesome that process that God used for building the foundation, at some point, the foundation's done. And now it's time to move on to building some walls and a roof and the next stages. In the passage that we're going to look at today, there have been some who want to read it as prescriptive rather than descriptive. They see this as a model for how we're supposed to do church today. Instead of simply using it to glean some principles for some of the things that we should be doing as a church body. There's, there's this thing called the house church movement, which claims that they're doing church right because they meet in houses like they did back in Acts 2, not in a, not in a big church building. And listen, there is nothing wrong with house church. That's, that's fine. But this passage isn't at all prescribing a size of church that's right. This isn't at all talking about the what's the proper location for church. There were no churches when they started. They didn't have it yet. They didn't get built yet. That took a little while. I think that's totally missing the point. And, and, and listen, there are going to be a bunch of other places as we study through Acts where that same error is made, where people want to take it and make it prescriptive rather than descriptive. And, I, and I'll try and point those out as we go. We've got to be careful. You got to be careful as we read it. Let's focus in on those principles that God's trying to teach us rather than trying to copy exactly what we see happening at this foundational point in the church. So, as we read through this passage, uh, keep, keep that in mind, and we're going to pull out some principles from what we see here. So this is right after uh, Peter preaches an awesome sermon. A bunch of people are saved. Verse 41, So then those who had received his word were baptized. That day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, so with Peter's amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost, 
The church grows from this like small church of 120 to this mega church of 3,000. Just like that. Oh. All I can think of as a pastor is like, wow, that sounds like a logistical nightmare. Like, what do you do with all those people? Uh, the, again, there's, there's no church buildings yet. So all the believers, they would still meet together at the temple. And then uh, they would uh, gather together in one another's homes. Do the things that they couldn't do at the temple, like like take communion. The the focus of their gatherings as they would uh, come together was was a couple of key things. And they're they're, uh, listed for us right there in that passage. First, it says they were continually like nonstop, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were hungry to learn more about God and about, and about Jesus and what He had accomplished for them. And just like Jesus had a, uh, promised beforehand, uh, the Holy Spirit helped to bring to mind to these apostles all that Jesus had taught them. And these twelve apostles tirelessly taught all that Jesus had taught them. Man, that must have been exhausting, right? I'm sure that every night these guys like fell asleep, tired from talking, hoarse, and like excited and anxious about waking up the next day to do it all over again. The hunger to learn about Jesus and the strength to teach about Jesus were both spirit-empowered things. Wherever the Spirit of God is present, there will be a love for God's Word. Right? Wherever the Spirit of God is present, there is going to be a love and a hunger and a desire for God's Word. It's, it's not, it's not a, a fear of uh, rules that drives us as Christians. It's, it's not, it's not this worry that we have now about God being angry at us that motivates us. It's not guilt that causes us to crack open our Bibles or, or come to here, here at church. I, I'm, I'm guessing that most of you aren't here because of guilt. Maybe a few husbands, but most of you aren't here because of that. Uh, it's just this total love for God and a desire to know Him more and better. A desire to deepen in our relationship with this God who loves us so much. That's what motivates us to want to learn more about Him. And, and I, again, I think that's why you're here. This isn't penance for you. It's just, this is a place where you know you can come and hear about the Word of God read and explained. Again, it's our absolute love for God that makes studying about Him such a joy. So at this foundational point in the church, the people had the apostles themselves to teach them. Unfortunately, those guys wrote a lot of stuff down for us so that we can open up the Bible, God's Word, and continue to be taught by the apostles' teaching. We can keep that tradition on where we can be devoted to learning more about Jesus and what He's done for us. So one of the principles that we can glean from what they did in the early church 
is that, that the Word of God should be front and center in everything that we do as a church. I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, Calvary's mission statement. It's to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ through sharing God's Word and serving others. That's, that's what we're supposed to be about as a, as a church. Better understanding, knowing, and sharing the Word of God. Second, it says they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. That's the, the Greek word that Jim mentioned when he was praying, koinonia. And when we think of fellowship, I don't know, maybe sometimes we think about uh, like hanging out together, spending time together. Maybe the fellowship that, that exists here where we're all together in church, worshiping together, and all of that is certainly a part of it. But maybe the best synonym for that word, koinonia, is sharing. This early church continually devoted themselves to sharing, like everything, sharing their stuff, their possessions, their time, their energy, their lives together to serve one another and to help one another and to sacrifice for one another. They devoted themselves to those things, to that kind of sharing. Look at verse 44 again. All those who had believed were together, had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It says they had all things in common. Uh, the, the Greek word there for common is koinos. It's the same root word for koinonia. That's why word studies are fun because there's all kinds of cool stuff that comes out when you, when you start digging in a little deeper. Some, when they read this, they see, oh, they were communists. Well, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> um, more, more, like a, more like a happy commune at the beginning. Uh, and, and it's not like people sold everything, right? They still had houses that they met in. They still had some property. And, and again, we got to be careful. Don't take this as prescriptive. This isn't saying that what we need to do is go out and sell everything that we own and then give it all to me. That's not what this is saying. I love you wanted to. We keep our property. We keep our stuff. I'm I'm the proud owner of a 2013 Chrysler Town and Country minivan, and I don't plan on giving that up. Uh, 16 payments, it'll be mine, but I'm not giving it up. It just means that they saw each other as a family, and they wanted to to make sure that everybody was taken care of. This was a community. And, And the same principles of selflessness and sacrifice and love should be the hallmark of us as a church. Since its beginning, the church has been a close community. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a close group gathering of people who care for each other and love each other. And our strength and our mission and our purpose is not ever supposed to be something that's, that's isolated and, and separatistic and individualistic. It doesn't work that way. Nowhere in Scripture does it suggest that we're just supposed to be an island. It's the reason why Paul talks about the church being one body with all these different parts. It doesn't function well unless all the parts are there and serving. That's why the author of Hebrews says that we shouldn't neglect the assembling together. Because we're supposed to be together. We're made to live and to work and to serve in the community of the church. 
The body of Christ is a corporate thing. And again, this doesn't mean that we become some like weird little ingrown commune. But the principles of being committed to serve and to share together with other believers is still totally applicable to us today. There's uh, this kind of consumer mentality that's crept into the church. I don't know, I read a lot of things, and a lot of what I read is talking about how to deal with that consumer mentality. And to some extent, uh, maybe the church or certain uh, church leaders have, have fed into that or, or, or built that a bit. Um, as a pastor, I do want to try and, and help meet people's needs. And there's always going to be people who, who come in to church with needs, right? With need for hope and a need for help, need for teaching, need for accountability, need for friendship and, and community. I think those are things that all of us, to some extent, need. We want our kids to be instructed and to know more about God. We need something that's bigger than ourselves. And this should be such a loving, sharing, giving, open, gracious community that when people come in here with those kinds of needs, they have those needs met. But for that to work, some of us, maybe most of us in this room, need to understand that we're not here merely to take, to consume, to have our needs met but to also help meet the needs of others. If we all come with a consumer mentality to church and all we're focused on is us, like our preferences and our desires and what we want, rather than on on what we can give for others, then there's not going to be any fellowship. It's just not going to, there's not going to be any koinonia. It doesn't work unless we give. How are you contributing to the life and community of this church? What are you bringing to share with others? How are you serving the people that God is bringing here? So these first converts to Christianity, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and then it says they're also devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. And I think that's a specific reference to communion, to the Lord's Supper. And I think the early church practiced communion a lot. Uh, Maybe every week, maybe every time they got together. And and it was done in houses because it's not something that the Jewish people would have wanted them to do in the temple. Look at verse 46. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. So they still worshiped there. And they were breaking bread from house to house. They did that there. And then they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I think the fact uh, that there's a difference here between the breaking of bread and the taking their meals together uh, shows that the breaking of bread was something unique and special and, and holy. Jesus had told them, right? Right before He left. Remember Him by eating that bread and drinking from that cup. And that act of communion that they were supposed to do continually was all about Jesus. All about focusing their hearts and their minds on worshiping Him. Just like 
Baptism was this one-time act of identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Communion was supposed to be the ongoing reminder of Jesus' death and burial and sacrifice for us. And this is just one of those things that helped them really focus on Christ. It was all about Him, and it still is. It's still an important part of, of our worship. I mean, we don't do it, we don't do it every, every day or every week. Some churches do. But again, I don't, I don't think that this is prescriptive. This is simply saying that we need to make sure that our focus is always on worshiping Jesus. And while we might not do communion every single Sunday, there is not going to be a single Sunday that you come into this room and you don't hear me talk about Jesus a lot. It's going to be clear that the focus of our worship and devotion is Jesus Christ. They were devoted uh, to breaking of bread and also to prayer. A Holy Spirit-filled church will be one that joins together in heart and mind in prayer to God often. Here at Calvary, since before I was born, uh, we've included in our time of worship on Sunday morning, prayer. Taking time out every single Sunday morning to pray. For us, prayer is crucial. It's a crucial part of, of our individual lives, and we understand that, but also a part of our corporate life together as a church. We do it a lot, but it's one of those things that I don't know if anybody anywhere has ever said, I probably pray too much. I probably do it a little bit. I, sh- I should dial it back a little, right? Nobody here thinks that they're overdoing the prayer thing. Like all of us, I think, no matter how much we do have a regular time of prayer in our lives, you feel like it's enough. It's never enough. And both the act of breaking bread and prayer are acts of worship to God. Now, ultimately, everything that we do, especially here together in this gathering, should be an act of worship to God. Right from the songs that we sing to the reading of God's Word, to the prayers that we offer up, everything that we do acknowledges how awesome our God is. Everything that we do should point to Him. As a result of that, as a result of our constant devotion to the Word of God, as a result of our fellowship and our unity as a body of Christ, as a result of our acts of worship to God, the Lord will continually be adding day by day those who are being saved. Because as we grow stronger and healthier as a church body, we'll be better and better at accomplishing the great commission that Jesus sent us on, which is to share the Gospel with those who need to hear it. The early church, they were devoted to evangelism. No doubt about it. A Holy Spirit-filled church will be one that has a deep love for those who are lost. One that causes us to hurt, to ache, to feel sorry and sad for those who are wandering, just like we were. A Holy Spirit-filled church will be one 
that, that's known for its its love and its joy and its gladness of heart, just like it describes there in verse 46. This isn't going to be a place that's full of like gr- grumpy, gloomy, critical, opinionated, judgy jerks. That's, that's not what we're known for. I love verse 47. They're praising God, having favor with all people. That's a Spirit-filled church. One that is praising God. And, and is respected by everybody who looks on. Hopefully when people see Calvary Baptist Church, what we're known for is our joy and our grace and our love for God and His Word. I praise God that Calvary is that kind of church. A place where there is sincerity of heart. Gladness. A place where we can study together and fellowship together and serve together and worship together and witness together with joy. God, thank You for that. Thank You for giving us the ability to serve and to worship and to praise You with joy because we understand what You have accomplished for us. I pray, dear God, that we would be a Spirit-filled church, one that has a deep love for Your Word, one where we have a deep love for each other and we want to share and encourage and help those around us. Lord, help us to have a deep love for You that comes out in how we worship and praise You. God, I pray that we would have a love for those who are lost. One that motivates us to reach out and to share that Gospel with others. God, make us a Spirit-filled church that honors You in everything that we do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.